Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Opening music today, March of the Toreadors, as presented in Music Box style. It sounds almost like a shortwave tuning signal. This melody was the first piece of music played on radio in Winnipeg, Manitoba, back in the autumn of the year 1921. This is WaveScan, researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson, and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 693 for release on Sunday, June 5th, 2022. And on WaveScan today, the early medium wave radio scene in the Canadian province of Manitoba. Part 3 of Jonathan Marks' documentary about Radio Prague, and our Japan DX report. Well, because of the declining state of international events in Europe more than 100 years ago, the British government ordered the closure of all amateur and non-essential wireless stations on Saturday, August 1st, 1914. The next day, Sunday, August 2nd, the Canadian government enacted a similar regulation calling for the closure of all amateur and non-essential wireless stations throughout the Dominion. At the time, there were only 79 licensed amateur wireless stations in Canada, though it is suggested that 10 times that number were active but unlicensed. Here's Ray Robinson now with the story of early medium-wave radio in Manitoba. Thanks, Jeff. It's interesting that although the British and Canadian governments enacted such regulations, the United States, of course, from 1914 to 1917, remained neutral regarding the open hostilities in continental Europe, and thus American amateur stations were permitted to remain active, though under the aegis of the United States Navy and with the implementation of specified restrictions. On Tuesday, August the 4th, 1914, two days after the closure of amateur stations in Canada, war was declared between England and Germany, and later that same day, Canada also enacted a similar declaration of war against Germany. Many Canadian amateur wireless operators subsequently continued to practice their Morse code capability by tuning in to the daily signals from the well-known American naval wireless station NAA at Arlington in Virginia. And then, too, many Canadian amateur wireless operators enlisted for active wartime service in wireless communication in continental Europe. Nearly five years later, after the Great War, World War I was over, and the world had begun to settle down somewhat, Canadian amateur radio operators were again permitted to resume their normal experimental activities beginning from April the 15th, 1919 onwards. However, one month to the day later, on May the 15th, 1919, landline telephone operators and postal employees went on strike in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Some 30,000 workers were on strike in Canada's third largest city, and they urged better working conditions and wages with perhaps a touch of communist ideology, as was evident in several European countries at the time. This massive strike, the largest in Canadian history, effectively brought economic activity in Winnipeg to a standstill, and it also isolated the city newswise from the rest of Canada for some six weeks. 
Almost a week later, in the evening of Wednesday, May the 21st, 1919, three licensed amateur wireless operators installed one of their wireless stations on the rooftop of the recently erected six-storey Free Press Building at 300 Carlton Street in Winnipeg. The simple antenna system was attached to the flagpole. Over a period of about two weeks, that informal wireless station in Winnipeg, with its quarter-inch spark gap, was able to communicate with a similar station at the University of North Dakota, though amateur wireless activity in the United States had not yet been relicensed after the end of the war. In this way, Winnipeg was to a certain extent brought back out of its unintended isolation. That informal wireless station also obtained regular news via the daily Morse code bulletins from the same American naval station, NAA, as well as from another Morse code wireless station located in Mexico. With this rather limited inflow of news and information, the free press in Winnipeg was able to print and issue a flat sheet for public distribution. And would you know it, just six months later, the three daily newspapers in Winnipeg used up all of their huge rolls of rationed newsprint paper. One amateur wireless operator provided news from NAA and other Morse code wireless stations, and thus at least one newspaper was able to print a few sheets of news for the public, again on flat plate sheets. During the autumn of 1921, the Kelvin Radio Club in the new Kelvin Technical High School at the southern edge of the city went on the air with the broadcast of music from its informal amateur station. That station was on the air with the legal call sign XEY, which was the style for amateur radio call signs in Canada back then. Several years later, the call sign XEY was applied to a medium wave station in Mexico. That high school radio station was on the air with a portable war surplus transmitter, an English-made Marconi Mark II unit with 20 watts input. The transmitter was located in the school basement and the antenna was installed on the northeast corner of the school roof. The station was operated by three licensed young men and the only music record they possessed featured an old well-scratched 78 RPM version of the March of the Toreadors, the same melody that you heard at the beginning of our programme today. They'd open the broadcast of each programme with that record as their identification melody, though on Saturdays they also made an amateur QSO with station 9YAF at the Pembina High School in Pembina, North Dakota. A few months later, a new regularly licensed medium-wave broadcasting station in Winnipeg made its first broadcast, just over 100 years ago, in February 1922, a little ahead of receiving its formal licence from Ottawa. The station was owned and operated by Lynn Salton, who was the government licence inspector for the Western Provinces of Canada, and it was installed in his home at 1164 Grosvenor Avenue in Winnipeg. I guess if you're the government license inspector, you can bend the rules just a little bit. That new station was supported also by the Winnipeg Free Press, and they wished to launch their regularly licensed station ahead of their rival newspaper, the Winnipeg Evening Tribune. Salton was granted the call sign CJCG. The original operating channel was 420 metres, 715 kilohertz, and the output power of his transmitter was just 10 watts. CJCG's regular sign-on routine each day began with the El Capitan March, which you'll hear at the end of the programme today. 
The official opening programme for the station's inauguration was hurriedly assembled in order to be ahead of their rival, and the station was launched initially under Salton's own amateur call sign 4AH. That first official broadcast included recorded and live music, local information, and a talk by Salton's pastoral father, Dr George F. Salton. But anyway, they achieved their purpose, and station 4AH, CJCG, was on the air, as the first regularly licensed medium-wave radio broadcasting station in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. We plan to cover more of the early radio broadcasting scene in Winnipeg in a future edition of the program. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. Last week on WaveScan, we presented the second part of a special media network program by Jonathan Marks, dedicated to the late Aldrich Chip of Radio Prague, who was chief engineer at the station and also chairman of the High Frequency Coordination Conference. Today we bring you part three of that media network documentary. Radio Prague, Czechoslovakia. On Monday, August 27th, the Czechoslovak leaders returned from Moscow, where they'd been forced to sign a secret protocol reversing the reforms of the Prague Spring. Radio Prague began to change its style. Yes, so very slowly uh, things would change, but nothing changed. And then actually about eight months later, it was about, let's say, March, April, 69. From that time, it started to be very, very bad again. Amazing listening, don't you think? Thanks to Roger Tardy, Arthur Cushion, Ehad Khudain, Luke Lucas, John Nichols and Dave Kenny for their help with background research for that documentary. So that's what we knew in 1988. I was always curious as to how Radio Free Prague was able to operate secretly for so long since the Czech radio building was one of the first targets for the Russian occupiers. To find out more, I met up with Ulrich Chip, who was the one and only frequency engineer at Radio Prague. Shortwave stations often need to change the frequencies they operate on, either because of interference or seasonal propagation. It was Ulrich's job to monitor Radio Prague's audibility and make frequency changes to the schedule if needed. Ulrich told me to meet him next to the top station of the Petrin Funicular Railway, which runs half a kilometre up Petrin Hill in Prague. There's a park at the top, as well as the 64-metre-high Petrin Lookout Tower, built in 1891 to resemble the Eiffel Tower. For nearly 40 years, it was also used to broadcast television signals to Prague. My name is Audrey Chip. I was also, I had a broadcast name of Peter Scala during the Czechoslovak and also uh, a bit later because I had a long duration program for, as it was called, uh, Radio Hobbyists and DXs of Radio Prague. And um, then after the collapse of communism, I came up with the idea because I knew some colleagues in the West uh, and I knew how difficult it was to coordinate shortwave radio during the time of the Cold War 
And I realized that the only way how to do it is to set up a network of informal or any sort of coordination that would be solving uh, this uh, problem on an ongoing basis. And uh, I succeeded. When did you get interested in radio? Well, this is quite simple. I was uh, interested in amateur radio. Uh, then I was, uh, you know, drawn into the military service. They... Uh, because I knew some Morse code and things like that, so then I uh, started to be involved again in, in communications uh, in the army, as I already explained. And uh, in addition, I, although I was uh, technically minded, I studied humanities, uh, exactly uh, linguistics, West European linguistics, which was quite suspicious for the authorities too. And uh, so I had some English, uh, especially knowledge, and so I tried to use it. And uh, obviously radio, it was a good combination, and that's how it happened. And when did you first get involved with Radio Prague? Uh, quite, quite after I graduated from the college. Okay. So this was my first, and it remained the only uh, occupation for the whole of my life, although there were moments, especially after the period of the uh, reforms in the Czech Republic, because of my contacts with uh, Western broadcasters, uh, I had uh, quite I, I was I, I was quite concerned that I would be kicked out really? uh, but uh, I survived and I carried on okay. although it was very difficult in the in the, in the so-called normalization period after this is, this is what 1980 68 until well, the, the, the normalization continued up to the early 70s or first, then there was some improvement after Gorbachev uh, came to power mm -hmm. in, in, in the Soviet Union. And of course, the final. I remember uh, you going to, I think you went to uh, an EDXC conference. Yes, yes, in yes. Brussels. Uh, in Not in Brussels, but two times at least in Sweden and one time in uh, Vienna. But uh, that was another interesting, uh, you know, story because then I was already. This was after the period of reforms, right. and I had. I uh, there was a lady who watched me then. You know. Yes, I. I, I, I okay, right. You know? Yes, I and then uh, everything because she took over uh, the these contacts, and um, I was banned from traveling to really? Western Western countries. But back in the fifties, there were other more secret transmissions coming from the army barracks on this hill. As a conscript, Ulrich served part of his national service here. Yeah, it is the same. This is the this is the entrance. 
That was a portion of a documentary by Jonathan Marks of Media Network dedicated to the memory of Aldrich Chip of Radio Prague. We'll have more of that documentary on a future edition of WaveScan. And if you want to find other programs on the Media Network Vintage Vault, you can find it on the web at jonathanmarks.libsyn, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. Again, that's jonathanmarks, spelled J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-M-A-R-K-S, altogether, dot L-I-B as in Bolivia, S-Y-N dot com. Hello and welcome to the DX Report of the Month from Japan Showtape Club, aged by Toshi Otake and I'm Yuki Kutsushi. We have several DX reports from our club members this week. BBC World Service via Philippines was heard on 15435 kHz on May 10th from 1532 to 1610 UTC in Korean. SIO rating was 454, then up to 554. News, commentary, and English lesson were broadcast. ID was given at 1559. Season People's Broadcasting Station from Lhasa, China, was heard on 7255 kHz on May 5th from 1600 to 1620 UTC in English. SIO rating was 343. Holy Tibet with latest news and local songs were on the air. Radio Saudi International was received on 21670 kHz on May 9th from 1140 to 1150 UTC in Indonesian. SIO rating was 454. Talk program by a male announcer was aired. 
Radio Pravda della Rossi via Moosbrun, Austria was heard on 6070 kilohertz on May 1st from the sign-on at 1900 to 1920 UTC in Russian. SIO rating was 353. News and interview were on the air. ID was given at 1900 and 1905. Radio Exterior de España from Spain was heard on 15520 kilohertz on May 2nd from 2030 to 2045 UTC in Spanish. SIO rating was 454. Talk program by male and female announcers with music was broadcast. ID was given at 2041. Voice of the Martyrs Korea via unknown transmitter site was received on 11620 kilohertz on May 7th from the sign on at 1500 to the sign off at 1530 UTC. SIO rating was 554. Talk program in English was aired, followed by talk program in unknown language at 1507. Radio Educación from Mexico City, Mexico was heard on 6185 kilohertz on April 29th. From 0840 to 0943 UTC in Spanish. SIO rating was 252, then down to 111. Non-stop music medley was on there. ID was given at 0937. Severe interference was from a Chinese station at 0943 on the same frequency. KNLS from Alaska, USA was heard on 9795 kilohertz on May 6 from 1200 with interval signal to 1230 UTC in English. SIO rating was 454. Songs and the latest business development program were broadcast. WRNO from New Orleans, USA was heard on 7505 kilohertz on April 25th. From 1115 to 1150 UTC in Chinese. SIO rating was 252. Talk and pop music program were aired. ID was given in English at 1146. Finally, Japan Shotev Club issued QSL cards for the correct reports on the segment of WaveScan program. We are issuing QSL cards by email to the report sent by email. Our address for your email report is JSWCQSL at LIVE.JP. I repeat, JSWCQSL at LIVE.JP. We continue to issue the printed QSL card by the same system as before. Your report should be addressed to JSWC PO Box 44, Kamakura, which is K A M A K U R A, postal code 248-8691 Japan. One ILC or two US dollars for return postage will be appreciated.
For this edition of DX Report, we would like to thank Mr. Yoshiaki Hayashi, Mr. Iwao Nagatani, Mr. Kazuaki Oikawa, and Mr. Shunosuke Okada for sharing the information with us. Thank you for listening, and please join us for our next edition of DX Report of Japan Showtime Club. I'm Yukiko Tsuji in Tokyo. Our closing music today on WaveScan is El Capitan by John Philip Sousa. This was the sign on music for every broadcast from CKZC, the first medium wave station in Winnipeg, Manitoba, back in February 1922. Well, thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, the 100 year story of medium wave WLW in Cincinnati and our Philippine DX report. Several QSL cards are available for WaveScan. Send your AWR and KSDA reports for the program to the AWR address in Thailand. I'll give you in a moment. And also to the station your radio is tuned to WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa or to IRRS Italy or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air. Here in the program, they will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSL cards is Adventist World Radio. P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok 10110, Thailand. Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok 10110, Thailand. The email address for other correspondence to WaveScan, not reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida, in the United States. Till next weekend or next week. Good listening, everyone. <laughs>